How about we just pray together? Put your hand on your heart. We just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would minister to the heart of your people tonight. I ask, God, that you would breathe fresh grace upon our hearts, Lord, that, that you would speak to us face-to-face, heart-to-heart, uh, in an in a intimate and a familiar way. God, in a way that is beyond what a sermon or even scripture, God, it'd be more intimate than that. It would be the very whisper of God that would just resound in this room. And so we give space to you, Spirit of God, to speak and to move. And we just thank you for how you've already ministered to us as we've ministered to the Lord tonight. And we just ask that you would continue to have your way in this space. Have your way in every heart. And we pray that in the mighty name of Jesus. If you believe it, say amen. 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 I am thankful to be here tonight. I uh, have spent some time praying recently, asking the Lord, okay, where I need fresh vision for the pulpit and and creating space for him to speak to me and, and maybe give me his thoughts and ideas as far as what are you doing in River House and what are you calling me uh, to, to speak into uh, in these days? And I, I have some direction for the summer and I'm going to kind of begin tonight laying the, the framework for where I'm going to kind of camp for the next uh, three or four months, I guess, through the, the end of August. I don't know how many times I preach between now and then, but uh, I, I will be camping on um, the topic of... Uh, our, our core values here at River House. Who was here the last time I, I taught on these? Uh, we have five paradoxes. Um, who is here? Yeah, so who is not here? Yeah, see, this is why I think the Lord wants me to talk about it. Is we've, we've had you know, a lot of new people joining our family in these last years, and I think it was the end of 2019. I, I taught on this, and I'm going to again uh, jump into it. And, but before I do, I'm just going to maybe give a little bit of the framework of why uh, we're doing this. And we've been talking about a royal priesthood. Who says priesthood? Can you say priesthood? Who's been learning that they're a royal priest and some of what that means uh, were these representatives of creation to God and God to creation. And he's called us to steward and cultivate the earth and actually turn the earth from a you know, a barren garden with seed in the ground, what Adam inherited to something that would be flourishing and full of life and ultimately looks like a city called Jerusalem. Amen. We've been called to build the city of God on earth. And the way we do that is a life of worship where we behold God and we imitate God. And that opened us into this whole season of worship. Amen. All right. We talked about this, um, I guess this rhythm and this blueprint where we're actually being trained in this life to become citizens in the next life. And we looked extensively, we've spent time, and I think I've maybe talked about this 15 times, and I've introed this at least 15 times, of Jerusalem is a city, it's a holy city that's built around a throne of worship. So you have this throne, and around the throne, you have this city with gates that are open, and through the gates, light gets exported to the nations, and you see this holy rhythm in the city to come, in heaven, in the place that we're being prepared 
to walk as priests and kings before the king of kings. This, this, you're at the throne and then you're in the midst and building a city and then it's being exported to the nations and then you're at the throne and there's this priestly rhythm that is so mirrored in what we see in Adam and Eve as they would walk with God in the cool of the day and then they would cultivate their relationship and then they would cultivate the earth and they were commanded to be fruitful so that the garden would extend and extend and that the earth would become more and more like heaven. Is anybody, can I get an amen? So this is not new, I promise. I'm just giving you an intro. And so we've spent a lot of time talking about worship because if we're going to be citizens of the city to come, the center of that city is a throne of praise and worship. Amen. So there's this, there's this, the priestly rhythm, it's, it's, it's a life of Worship, and then it's work that flows from that worship. And maybe another way you could categorize it is we're going to become uh, worshipful. We're learning to be worshipers who worship and love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then we're sent on mission to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the greatest commandment. This is the law and the prophets that we would learn to worship God with everything we have and empty ourselves out at the throne so that he can then fill us with his life and we'd be empowered to lay our lives down for the sake of love, mission, worship and mission, worship and mission, mission and worship. Yeah. Who got touched two weeks ago looking at an expression of mission? I love the missionary heart of Jesus. It's just this beautiful dance. It's this, it's this behold him as we worship him and then express what we behold through mission, right? Mission expresses what we behold in worship. So if you want to get a glimpse into the God that someone worships, watch the way they live their lives. Right? Our lives are a visual aid that prophesy to the world, this is the God that I love. That's a good word. Heidi Baker exemplified that to me maybe more than anyone else. I, I got to be in proximity to her for a number of months, and I was completely marked, ruined, moved, transformed, not just by the words that she said, but by the life that she lived. Because the life that she lived, I was confronted by because it represented to me an aspect of the nature of Jesus that, frankly, I didn't know and I was intimidated by. As she would hold the dirty and the, the poor. And literally we were sent to a leper village one day and she said, you know, I hold the lepers. And if you know anything about leprosy, leprosy is contagious and uh, it can get on you if you hold it. And she was like, you don't have to hold the lepers. I hold the lepers because I have faith to hold the lepers. But she was saying, it's okay if you want to put on, you know, um, gloves. And I was like confronted. Like, oh my gosh, do I put on gloves? She, it was just this love, like the way that she lived showed me the God she worshiped and I didn't know the full expression of the God she worshiped. I was intimidated. Are you, are you following me? There's this beautiful, we're called to be representatives of Jesus, representing Jesus to the world. And so the priestly vocation is that I'm beholding him and then I'm expressing him through mission. And this mission is really powerful when this is really vital. So yeah, I think you're getting the point. I'm still just trying to introduce some things. So I, I want to 
essentially why I want to go into these paradoxes, these core values, whatever um, you want to land and call them, is because really they are expressing the nature of God that he is um, revealing here to this house. Like I think every church carries spiritual DNA. Amen? What I mean by that is churches are like siblings. You know, all the siblings express the same DNA of mom and dad, but they are a different manifestation of that expression. I think the local church is like this, where every church, like we all have similar DNA. It comes from Jesus. He's the head, but we express a different aspect of who he is because we're all a different feature and a part of the body. And so this is true at the individual level. This is true at the corporate level of even local churches themselves. And the church universal is glorious because together when she's fit, she expresses the fullness of the nature of God. And, uh, and, but, but I think so it's important that we have a global vision, but I think it's also important that we have a local vision for the, the, the aspect of Jesus that's most potently being expressed within a local community. Um, I think sometimes because we don't understand that Jesus does give unique dispensation of grace to different local churches, we end up pointing fingers and trying to figure out which one's better. That's just like silly because it's all his body. <laughs> Come on, it's all his body. It's like, it's like that elbow's weird. It's like it's his elbow. It's beautiful. So, so we're, we're going to talk about these five paradoxes that are kind of like, okay, here's the best, the, my best get, and we, we, we spent time, we had some think tank groups, and when we brought this forth a few years ago, and, and again, I'm just trying to go a layer deeper with the Lord of speak to me more, because the more that we mature as a house, I think the more we're getting a grasp on what exactly it is. Like, Jesus, what are you doing uniquely here at River House? And again, I just want to say explicitly, it's not to promote some form of elitism. I actually think elitism is gross in the body of Christ. I don't think that River House is any better than any other place on this planet that worships the name of Jesus in purity. Uh, we just are trying to be true to the identity that he's birthing here. Amen? So uh, the nature of God is essential. It's core to both worship and mission because I think both of them together are informing us. And I, I don't know if you could, I don't know, maybe in your own story or life, but I can look at mine and I can see where my image and my understanding of who God's nature is has been formed by both worship and mission. I've encountered him on the road, in ministry, in places like what we saw a couple weeks ago that mark me, change me, reveal who he is to me. And then it pushes me into a place of deeper worship because I have a more profound revelation of him and vice versa. Yes? Okay, so that's, that's kind of what, that's my introduction, yeah? So I'm going to um, really, we're, we're going to talk about the nature of God. That's, that's what I want to do this summer. And uh, we're going to approach this, I'm going to approach this with a lot of humility because God is unsearchable. Uh, there is no, no human on the planet could give an adequate answer to what the nature of God is. You could say the word holy, that would be the scriptural word to encompass the nature of who this God is, but we'll be spending all of eternity trying to figure out what holy means. So uh, we're going to come real low with a lot of humility and say, let's offer this so that we can let the Spirit of God maybe restart 
restoke flames in our hearts or, you know, reinvigorate our imagination to come to even a greater place of wonder of who is this God that we are worshiping week after week and then seeking to express through the missional way that we live our lives. Okay, Lord, help us do that these next three months. Amen. Amen. All right, so we have chosen to communicate core values here, not in five values, but more through five paradoxes. Who knows what a paradox is? Okay, like four of you. You can talk back, it's okay. I'm, I'm a human too. I have ears, they work. A paradox is defined as two seemingly contrasting ideas that are contained in the same truth. God loves paradox. Do you know this? You know, have you ever gotten caught in the paradox of Mary and Martha? It's like, no, all you do is pray. And then you're like, well, well there's other things. And the Lord's like, yeah, go. And you're like, well, I thought all I was supposed to do is pray. And he's like, go. And you're like, right? And you start doing the splits on the inside. You're like, I don't know how to do this because there's two apparently contrasting ideas contained in the same truth. The key to unlocking paradox is usually priority. So the priority is quite clear in the paradox of Mary and Martha. Some paradoxes are not quite so easily discerned in discovering and wrestling with the priority and how to really understand and then walk in the tension of paradox. But one of the reasons I think that God loves paradox, similarly, the, the, the root word in the Greek would be very similar to the word for parable. Jesus taught primarily in all right, that was a little better. You guys, like, maybe I was 40% of the room. I got, that's good. Makes me feel good. You like me. Paradox or similar to... Come on, yeah. We're doing this together now. Paradoxes are similar to parables, and parables are stories that have meanings that are deeper than just the words being told. So we can read the same story, the prodigal son, and you see, you know, it refracts truth in like 100 different ways. Like, who's heard multiple sermons on that that have spoke to you in different ways at different seasons of your life, right? Because parables, they're powerful. They have a way of making you wrestle with them. They don't just come forward and give you straight doctrinal truths because we all know what we do with straight doctrinal truths. We make like a performance code of how we get an A and we would just try to get the A. But Jesus taught in a way that you didn't know how to get the A. You actually just had to sit and wrestle for truth, yeah? Yeah. Don't you just hate it that Jesus does that? He doesn't just give you the plain answer. He does tell him, thankfully. Sometimes I tell him this when I'm just exhausted of wrestling with tension. I say, Lord, you said in John 16, the days are coming. I'm going to speak plainly to you about the Father. Like, can you please just speak plainly to me today? I'm tired. I'm getting torn apart by the paradox right now. And I usually, it's just like that, silence. He's like, yeah, those days are still coming, Jordan. So until those days come plainly where we're just face to face, which I have faith that even in this life we can work into that where he could trust me with plain truth because I wouldn't create a spreadsheet of how I can control the system so that I get blessed, you know? I guess that's a sign I'm not quite there yet. But par paradoxes are similar. They, they, they're tension, right? So principles... 
Paradoxes are usually built on principles. So a principle is static. It's like an anchor. It's rooted. This is good. We need things that are rooted, like God is good. God is love. There are certain things that are just static truths that are foundational across the ages. But if we're honest, we've all seen where these static truths can go wrong because certain type of people, like the mercy of God and the justice of God, who has seen people lose the tension on that one? And you can veer into justice and you can camp around the truth of God's justice. It's a principle, but you get logged around it and you actually like lose life because you've lost the tension and you no longer have to depend upon God and his voice. But we start to veer into thinking that we could suppose to what God is doing or saying or thinking at a time, right? And the same thing can happen on the other side with mercy. It, it can become static. It can become rooted. It no longer requires us to empty and depend and lean and listen because we can control principles. We can understand them. We think we can. We can't, but we think we can. They have an illusion of that. But paradox, you can't control a paradox. A paradox, if you give yourself to it, it actually starts to take the leadership over you. And it's like mercy and justice and they get pulled and all of a sudden you're just on this tightrope like, whoa. And you're just like, da-da, da-da. That's what Naomi, she's trying to walk right now. It's like, oh, don't get too far. She'll kind of start balancing. But it's like, not too far because I can't quite do this myself. God likes that. No, 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 you can't quite do this yourself. We, it's like we need the perpetual reminder, your mind can't comprehend me. So paradox, God loves paradox, amen? So we're gonna talk about these, these paradox and uh, let the Lord disciple us. Like that, that's, that's how we've done this. I, I just wanna offer, so we're gonna offer, we're gonna go deep into these five paradoxes. Some I might spend multiple weeks on and I wanna create a space to wrestle and somehow in that wrestling, I just believe that revelation's gonna come and we're all gonna hopefully move from where we are to a little place deeper where we get a greater glimpse of who this God is and we become a little more humble in the process and a little more dependent and a little more out on the water and a little more t- caught in the tension but somehow in that place, he shows up again and again and again. And he says, Peter, just look at me. Get out of the boat. Get out where you are in control and get to the place where you're not because that's where I want you to be. Because when you're living in that place, anything's possible now because you're no longer looking at your weakness or your ability, your strength. It's just, I have nothing. And he says, yeah, just stay there. Just stay there. A lot of the mystics, it started with St. John of the Cross in like the 1400s. You'll see this through a number of the devotional books. They would say things like this. God cannot be thought. He can only be loved. And what they're saying is that the only way to know God, it's not here. It's to love him. You don't get to know him in the way that you possess and have a comprehension of. Because that puts us in a place of power but we do get to come to the place where we know him and are known by him. And somehow, even as we mature, we become more like children. God loves paradox. Come on, somebody. Do you love paradox? You're like, I don't think so. You're like, what am I signing up for? This might be a live stream summer. I'm just joking. (laughs) <laughs> I 
All right, so here's, here's the first one, and I'm really only going to get to the first half of the first one tonight, and that is uh, intimacy and mystery. So God is a God of intimacy, and he is also a God of mystery. And this is just a little paragraph. Yeah, this is the, we have this beautiful artistic renderings of some of these that, uh, that Jody Miller made years ago. So they're just going to stick them up there because I think they're beautiful. And if you want it, they're so deep and full of scripture and stuff. So they're really cool. You can engage with them on your own. Maybe, maybe Isaiah could send them out in emails too. I don't know. Sorry, Isaiah. I love you, man. All right. So here's the, the paragraph of, of this. And then we're just going to maybe jump into a few inches of water on it tonight. Uh, God, so intimacy and mystery. God desires to be known by us. His dream is holy union with his people. And like marriage, man and woman sharing in the beauty and vulnerability of sacred companionship, so Christ loves the church, his bride. God is not distant. Rather, he exposes his heart and pursues man relentlessly to see his dream fulfilled. Intimate union. At the same time, God is infinite and boundless. He's a cloud of unknowing seated above and beyond comprehension in all of our knowing of his holy nature, like pioneers forging into a great frontier, we're continuously exposed to all that we do not know, understand, or have the ability to explain. He is a mystery. So let that sit. All right, you ready? So uh, really, we're going to talk about intimacy tonight because I, this, is, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Who loves talking about intimacy with God? All right, the rest of you are going to love it by the end of this night. So intimacy with God is the center of life. It's the very centerpiece. It's if you were to you know, draw your life in a diagram of concentric circles, what you would get to when you got to the very center is that it is all about intimacy with Jesus Christ. There's, there's everything in this world, animals, trees, the earth itself, your body is dying. Everything is dying. Except for one thing. Jesus, who rose from the dead as a manifestation that he is the source and the author of life. And if we are not intimately intertwining and receiving daily nourishment and profound connection with this life, we are just decaying away like the rest of this created order that is ultimately going. It says in Peter, everything's going to be burned with fire. But that which is of life, that which is of God will remain forever. Intimacy with Jesus, is, it's the center. It's, it's, there, there's, there is nothing more important logically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way. It's all about intimacy with Jesus. For the Christian above all people, our daily hope is for an ever-increasing experience of God's love. We are literally dying without this. Relationship with the Holy Spirit is the oxygen that we breathe. If, you know, if I asked you all to hold your breath, it would just be a few moments before gasped would start to be heard in this room. And the truth is, is whether you're in contact with the desire of that gasp, we are all gasping for God. We are, we are dead 
if we are not in connection and union with him. He is the source of life. We have no life in us, but we have eternal life in him. Man lives not on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, John 4, Jesus says, you know, uh, when they leave him at the well because he was hungry and they get back, they say, did you eat? I have food you don't know about. Right? There's this principle that we don't live, like just in the way that we're nourished by food, by oxygen, by water, by these things. God said, I brought you to the wilderness, Israel, to humble you so that you would recognize that that's not your greatest dependence. You need me more. You know, more than a, a, a nursing child expects and needs the nutrient of that milk. We need his presence more. We need his love more. Like, there's a gasp. There's an ache. Can you imagine? I have this, my little girl, she doesn't, she lets me have it. She doesn't get her milk within three minutes of waking up. You know, because she knows. She knows her need. Do you know your need? Are you in touch with that need? I pray that Holy Spirit will help us tonight get in touch with that need. There is food that we don't know about and more than an infant depends for her milk. The Christian depends upon the manifestation of God's presence, the felt experience of holy love. Oh, we need it. We need it. We need it. In saying this, I just want to bring to your attention, whether you're aware of this or not, there is a widespread cultural snobbery, some outside of the church, but even within the church, around the idea of what I just presented to you, that that personal subjective encounter with God would be essential to the Christian faith. A lot of that is because we are still living in the Western world uh, that is logic and ration driven. And whether we realize it or not, the water that we swim in is constantly speaking a message that the head is to be exalted above the heart. And that feelings can't be trusted. And that the inner part and the sensitive places of a human, those are the lesser parts. Those are the more erratic, uncontrollable parts of us. And what we really can trust is the hard, true logic of the human mind. And that is unscriptural. It's not what we see in the Bible. It's not what we see in the way that God goes about loving and discipling and creating connection with his people. Uh, his means of introduction is, is not the mind. He does not negate the mind. I'm not trying to throw the mind out, but the mind is not first in Christian spirituality. If you look at the scriptures, you look at the story, you look at the Hebrew culture itself, the heart takes precedence over the head. And, and 1 Corinthians is still true today. The, the Greeks, which would be the ration-driven Western culture, this is 1 Corinthians 1 through 2. I'm going to share a couple verses here. The Greeks are still searching for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, reason, but on the power of God, experience. 
But there's a lot of judgment and thoughts and distrust for the idea of subjective revelation and an encounter with God. And it's so widespread that a lot of people don't even know if I'm allowed to want an encounter with God on a daily basis. And what does that even mean to have an encounter with God? What does it mean to be wrapped and encountered by love on a day-to-day basis? Like, is that, an, is that can I actually believe for that? That's a, that's a question. I get that question. I've had that question repeatedly through the years. It's almost like, no, I feel like that's an entitlement. I said, no, that's not an entitlement. It's no more entitled than a little child needing milk every morning. This is part of how we've been hardwired is that we are craving the ongoing experience of love, the felt manifestation of God's presence. This is what Jesus shed his blood for. It wasn't some sort of a visitational relationship. Truly, he wants closeness with you. He wants the manifestation of your presence more than you want his. He wants you to open up your heart and show him you more than you want him to open his heart and show him you. He loves you. Like, he really loves you. It's like when a girl kind of likes you, but you really, really, really like her. That's Jesus. Jesus is like the guy that really likes you, and you're still like, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure him out. He's kind of a little holy. <laughs> he seems like a little too much of a good boy. You know what I'm talking about? All that, all that crazy stuff. You know what? You want good boys, ladies. I'm not talking about past pain and rejection right now either, Okay. So I'm just going to give you three quick truths. I'm maybe going to open up this topic a little deeper, but really I want to liberate you and build your faith that you're allowed to believe for experience, that experience isn't some sort of a lesser thing just because we're living in a ration-driven culture. This is the truth. God has high value for subjective experience. Every story in the scripture begins with a man or a woman having an encounter with God. That's a subjective revelation. And some of them interpreted their encounter wrong, like Joseph. He was like, oh, yes, I knew my brothers. They're my servants. You know, it's like, like it it doesn't mean that they got it right. It doesn't mean that they had the character, even the ability to interpret what God was saying. That's not the point. The truth is God didn't care. He didn't care that they didn't have the character yet. He introduces himself to the heart. And he encounters us, even if he knows sometimes we might not interpret it the right way, sometimes for years. God has high value. This is how his stories begin. He comes and he introduces his heart to our heart. And the heart comes to love through the union of an encounter. He didn't didn't disciple Peter's mind until Peter already loved him. Because he met him at the boat and multiplied fish. Like Jesus just steps in and manifests his presence, his love. That's how the stories start. This is another truth. The weakness of experience is that we are blind to our own subjectivity. We all live at the mercy of our mental map. Dallas Willard was notorious. He would always say that in his teachings. We are bound. We live at the mercy of our mental map, which is the way that we interpret the world. So God, in time, does have to disciple the mental math. The mental math. Mental math's good, too. But he doesn't necessarily have to disciple that, so you're okay. Don't don't feel anxiety about that one. But he does have to disciple our mental map. Repentance is changing the way that we think. But repentance flows from a heart that's been 
mesmerized by Jesus and fallen in love with him. So essentially, the biblical pattern is that God goes after the heart and the mind, but encountering God is what shapes and molds and opens and redeems and builds an attachment of love with the heart. And then the mind often catches up to what the heart has already grown to love. So God wants both. And for the sake of tonight, I just want to infuse you that you you are authorized to put a demand upon heaven for the affection of your God. You're not being entitled. You're not being presumptuous in coming with faith that my heart is longing for love today. I want to be intimately woven into you today. Yada, that was the Hebrew word for knowledge. It was Adam and Eve, yada, Adam, yada, Eve. In you know, Ephesians 3, Paul's prayer that you would, you would yada what's beyond comprehension and be filled with the fullness of God. The whole Hebrew worldview was around experiential knowledge, not just an intellectual knowing. Okay, so we'll jump more into this. Like there is a subjectivity. There is weaknesses and blind parts in subjective encounter, but God thinks really highly of it. He does it all the time with people that have no grid for him. With people that are like, yeah, you're gonna spend the next 80 years figuring this out and you still won't get it. Then you'll get to heaven and you'll keep trying to figure it out. He's not, he's not overwhelmed by our lack of intellectual prowess. So th- this is a statement I want you, you can write it down if you're taking notes, is that orthopraxy is more important than orthodoxy. Say orthopraxy. Orthopraxy means right practices. So if you think about it, orthopraxy is walking the right way. And if you think of a disciple, a disciple was one who would follow the footsteps of the rabbi. So this is like Galatians 5 when it says, keep in step with the Holy Spirit, speaking to a context that knew discipleship. So they're saying, walk with the Holy Spirit. Do what he does, yeah? Orthodoxy, say doxy. That's right beliefs. Orthodoxy is important, but in a, we've inverted this in Western culture where we've kind of grown to think that Christianity is about orthodoxy and that orthopraxy will flow from orthodoxy, but we've all known that we've come to intellectual assent of certain things that don't show up in the way we live our lives, yeah? Like we can all have the orthodox belief that God is Jehovah Jireh, which means... He's our provider who believes that that is an orthodox statement. And then who has believed that orthodox statement and in a time of financial stress, you've lost your marbles. I'm raising my hand. Jackie's like, raise your hand. I'm raising my hand. That shows that my orthodoxy didn't show up as orthopraxy. Yes? So... From God's perspective, orthopraxy, walking the right way, is more important than just coming to the intellectual head knowledge of things. This plagues Western Christianity. We are orthodox, but our lives don't watch the way we live. But I could tell you ever, I could tell you the Ten Commandments backwards. So orthopraxy flows from a heart that's in union with God. 
right? If we're going to walk with God, that's a heart of intimacy. That's a heart that's being changed and softened and transformed by love day after day after day after day. Softened, spoken to, corrected, exhorted, loved, loved, loved. It's like our hearts have to get loved back to life. That's what orthopraxy flows from. Orthodoxy can often be reduced to mere intellectual assent, doesn't show up in the way we live our lives. This is a great example of this. Uh, Who knows John Wesley? He's the father of the Wesleyan movement, so Methodism and uh, Church of the Nazarene. He's a a huge intellectual or theological uh, move within the church. And uh, revivalist, he's he's the real deal. Uh, You've probably sang some of his brother's songs. They were the dynamic duo, Sons of Thunder. And... Uh, John Wesley early, what, what really shaped him, he's on a boat, um, he, was, he was trained, he was orthodox, he was probably, he's highly educated, he's a smart guy, so he was very orthodox, he knew everything, and he was, he was so convinced, like, he had faith, he got on a boat, went across the Atlantic Ocean to go preach the gospel to America, when America was just beginning, and I'm not sure if it was states or provinces yet, or what it was, and I believe he was coming to Georgia, he's on a boat, and in the boat, there's also these Moravian missionaries, which... Uh, Wesley had been studying in a seminary. The missionaries, the, the Moravians were in a generational long, it was a hundred year long prayer movement. So they were getting shaped through the presence of God and deep devotional experiences, subjective encounters, mind you. They weren't educated. The Moravians were one of the first movements that ever sent out lay missionaries, people that perhaps didn't know the holy writs the way they were supposed to, you know? So Wesley's this educated man. He's in a boat with these Moravians who are these more lay people-oriented missionaries, and the storm sets in on the Atlantic, and they all think that they're going to die. Like, this thing is ripping the boat apart. Wesley, like most human beings, is losing his marbles, and he looks over, and he sees the Moravian missionaries with perfect tranquility, praising and worshiping the Lord. His orthodoxy was confronted by orthopraxy. He he was confronted by people that had a union with Jesus that could stay them in the literal storm of life. And he was losing his marbles. And this uh, wrecked him. He had unsuccessful ministry in the States, probably because he wasn't in union yet. He goes back home and he couldn't kick this experience of what did they have that I didn't have. And it led him eventually, he went and spent time with the Moravians and he went seeking and searching to try to bridge the head to the heart and he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit and if any of you know the words he said is that my heart was strangely warmed. God met the heart. And when that man's heart made connection when he became intimate with Jesus. Everything changed. That's all of our story, by the way. This is Roland Baker talking about the heart. He says, the heart is what determines who we are, what we're worth to God, what we mean to God, and what we mean to each other. It's not about who's the smartest or the most educated or even the most anointed. None of the above. We look on the outside. Jesus looks on the heart. We look at ability, leadership, skills, and power, but he looks on the heart. You can't hide it from him. 
However, you can hide it from people. You can even hide it from your own family. You can hide it from your church and hide it from your friends, but you can't hide your heart from God. It's what's in the heart that matters. We look for something else, and so we hide our hearts. We hide what's really the motivation behind all we think, say, and do. But God looks at our motivation. By that standard, nobody can stand without the blood of Jesus. And by that definition, a change of heart is the biggest miracle, the most important miracle, and the only miracle that really matters. We need all the other miracles. We need health and wealth more than anybody of the poor in Mozambique. But God could fork over all the money we want in a day. He could heal everybody in Mozambique in a day. But he spends an entire lifetime working on a believer's heart. The heart is his greatest masterpiece, his greatest creation. That's what he's interested in, your heart. We are desperate for him to heal our diseases and pay our rents. But we should be even more desperate for a clean heart. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish and it will be done. How's that for a definition of real, pure revival? If we do what he says, he'll do what we say. (laughs) Yay, God. Yay, Roland. In Matthew 5, Jesus, he says this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And somehow that one statement seems to characterize the whole lifetime of God's involvement with the heart. The more pure we come, become, the more we see him. The more we see him, we become in union with him. We become more pure. The more we see him, the more pure we become. The more pure we become, the more we see him and it's this lifetime of letting him sanctify and redeem and change the heart but it's all through intimacy even eyes eyes are the gate of intimacy into me you see the eyes the heart face to face blessed are the pure in heart they see God if you want to get insight to the state of your heart How often do you see him? How connected, how intimate are you with him? Oh, he's longing. He's longing for this connection. Your heart is his masterpiece. It's his lifelong pursuit. Intimacy isn't static. It's the change agent of the human heart. It is impossible to be intimate with God and leave the same way. Every time we come into his presence and we open and we see and receive and we encounter and we invest in this love relationship with Jesus, we're changed. We're changed. Do I have like 10 minutes? I think I can do this all in 10 minutes. If you answered no to that question, you can quietly slip out too. <laughs> I always realize that's kind of an awkward thing to say no to. Sorry, Pastor. <laughs> it's just not tonight. <laughs> oh, help me, Jesus.
There is a law of the heart. And the law of the heart is this. What it desires, it will have. Love is jealous. God is jealous because love is jealous. Love is fierce. It says in the Song of Songs, it's stronger than death. It will not stop until it has what it desires. That is the power of love. That is the power of the desire, the ability for desire. You and I have an infinite ability for desire because there is an infinite shaped hole. There's this God-shaped hole in us that is designed by God. It's the seat of desire, and it has the power to reach out and attain that which it wants. So what we set our heart's desire upon is of utmost significance because we will have what we set it upon. We are not passive victim little beings. We are powerful. We are image bearers. We are creative. We are made in his image. And what we set our heart upon, we will have. This is why God is all about the heart. Jesus is pursuing the heart. It's because the heart is a force. It's a love stronger than death. This is Song of Song, chapter 3. The bridegroom speaking of her heart's desire. It says, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but didn't find him. I must arise now and go about the city. Love will make you move. It will make you go. In the streets and in the squares, I must seek him whom my soul loves. The watchmen found me. This would be symbolic of the elders or the leaders in the city. They found me and I said to them, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found him. I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and I would not let him go. That's the heart. That is a heart. That's every heart towards that which a heart loves. Marvin Gaye said it a little differently. Ain't no mountain high. Ain't no river. Enough, baby. If you need me. No matter. All right, you get the point. The heart knows how to speak. Can I get an amen? The heart will have that which it sets its desire upon. That's the law of the heart. God knows this. It is woven all throughout the scriptures. You'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your. Do you realize how powerful a statement that is? God, Yahweh, creator says, you will find me when your heart searches for me diligently. I will be found by you, says the Lord. My goodness. We underestimate, we, we've lost perspective on the power of our own heart, our own inner being, our own spirit. The heart that sets itself upon God will have him and be filled with joy, with peace, with life, with abundance. 
And a heart that sets itself upon something else will have that which it seeks and still be in want. That's the life. That's the knife's edge. There's no middle ground. And a heart that is void of intimacy is the mark of idolatry. You can write that down. A heart void of intimacy with God is the mark of idolatry because there's no middle ground. The heart's either set on God or it's set on something else and it will have that which it seeks. It doesn't mean that we can't have mixture. We can, but when it comes to first place, there's only one first place. Here's, here's just four scriptures upon the heart and then I'll just offer you a question that, that you can take and you can take this to your quiet place with the Lord. But in Matthew 6, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And my question to you is, where is the treasure of your heart? In Mark 4, 9, Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower. He's talking about the seeds sown among thorns. And he says, but the worries of this life the deceitfulness of riches, and catch this, the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. My question for us tonight is what do we desire most fervently? Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him Yada him, be intimate with him, and he'll make your path straight. So my question for us is in what does our heart trust? Not orthodoxy, orthopraxy for all of us as we're, as we're praying this through with the Lord. And then last way, this is Matthew 24. Jesus says, because of the multiplication of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. So my last question is, what is the temperature of your heart? I'm gonna close with a couple more thoughts and then and create a space for a, a heart connection with God tonight. Uh, to a heart that's been marred by religiosity, I have found that the call to first love often sounds like a backbreaking burden. Another command to follow that's too heavy to carry. And it essentially sounds something like this on the inside. You're not enough for God. You don't pray enough, give enough, love enough, serve enough, evangelize enough, worship enough. You're not enough. And to someone that's been marred, a heart that's been damaged by the performance of religion, it's like I can't take anymore. It's like I've done my best. I don't know how to love him any better. But that is not Jesus' heart. That's the opposite of Jesus' heart, that message. Jesus actually rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says this, this is the New Living Transversion. He says, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. This isn't Jesus. Every command of Jesus contains a promise of a grace outpouring. Nothing Hear this, nothing Jesus says or does is self-seeking. 
It's always with our highest good in mind. Every command contains a promise of an outpouring of grace. Meaning when he says, be holy as I'm holy, he's giving you a promise that I'm going to pour my grace. I'm going to pour the substance of my holiness into you. He's not saying do what you can't do. He's actually creating an opportunity for humility. Say, I can't do it. He says, I know. Let me meet you with my grace. <laughs> this is Jesus. So this is the call to first love. I just, I, I, I felt the heart of the Lord. I don't know if you call this prophetic. But the call to first love is not a command to exert more energy in trying to please God. It is a loving, tender correction that says this. Your heart is sickened by the sin of this world. And even though you can't hear your own heart speaking, I can. I see its tears. I hear it crying out in pain over the troubles and anguish and oppression of this life. I see it growing cold, eroding in fear because of its disconnection from me. Come back to me. Humble yourself and open your heart. Let me love you and reawaken in you the joy of salvation. We love because he first loves. And the awakening with love, our call is we have to humble and open. His job is that he floods us with a love indescribable and full of glory that completely transforms us. He encounters but we have to open and get rid of the pride and the junk and the self. We have to say, God, I want you to work on my heart. Says Roland one more time. When people get convicted, they get cut to the heart, to the very core of their being. A lot of people need their hearts cut to the core, sliced to the guts. Would you like the Holy Spirit to shine so deep into your heart that everything is revealed and cleansed? That doesn't just happen because you declare, God likes me just the way I am. Yes, he loves you, but that doesn't mean he likes what's in there. We need to be fixed. We need to come before Jesus totally empty and say, I just want a clean, pure heart. That's what I want from God. That's how I see revival. Huge numbers of people pouring forward to get a clean heart then miracles will follow. What if we decided that all we wanted was to be a people after God's heart, seeking what he wants us to do rather than trying to convince him of our own plans? God said of David, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. Wouldn't it be amazing if God said the same thing about us? And in return, God gives us the desire of our hearts himself. God does not need performance. He needs humility. God doesn't want striving. He wants openness. And when we give that to him, we're met with love. Often the deepest bonds of intimacy emerge from the places of our greatest brokenness. It's like what Jesus told Simon the Pharisee as the immoral woman came and wept at his feet. He who's forgiven much loves much. And I, I just 
briefly, I feel prompted to share that even in, in my own story, it's been some of the places of chronic brokenness uh, where the place of God's love has most powerfully and potently transformed my life. Uh, in the area of my own sexuality, I struggled with sexual addiction for years. And there was about a two-year period of my life where I was longing to be pure. And I stumbled a hundred times, maybe more. And every time I opened before him, I never justified. I would just weep. I would confess. I went to every spiritual leader in my life. I